Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. We may, uh, I've, I've got quite a bit to say and I want that there's a activity that I want to do that will take about 20 minutes. So we, we may cut into the next uh, meditation session uh, with the time that we spend on this. I apologize for that, the altering the schedule, but um, just a, a, a thought about that for right now. Uh, so, okay, so I want to give a talk. Uh, it's about feelings uh, as, they, as they are labeled in the um, book uh, by Analyo, the meditator's guide for the Satipatthana uh, Sutta. Um, yesterday, Kim led us in exploring how we can focus on aspects of our anatomy and the elements, or the, the ancient way of describing the elements, as ways to explore the establishment or foundation of mindfulness. And we heard Bhikkhu Analyo lead those wonderful guided meditations. Uh, we'll be doing more of the same today, exploring uh, some other areas that Buddha pointed to in the Satipatthana Sutta, feelings and mind. This morning, I'm gonna talk about feelings and this afternoon, mind and, and mental formations also. Um, I don't know if the discovery of the Vedanas, which is the Pali word for feelings, or that gets translated for us as feelings, if the discovery of the Vedanas as such important kind of agents in human psychology, if that was something that the Buddha came up with himself, or if it was something from the previous um, explorations uh, in the tradition that he came out of, uh, much the same way that sitting meditation, breath focus, walking meditation came out of the traditions that preceded the Buddha. But I do, I, as far as I can tell, I feel confident in saying that the Buddha was unique in making the Vedanas a, a crucial part of the meditation practice. Um, a focus that uh, teachers have uh, uh, elaborated on, reiterated uh, for centuries, from the Chan masters to Dogen to uh, the modern time, and our, our teachers Peck and Flint. Um, we all think we know what feelings are, right? I mean, we have a, a modern definition. Uh, the word feelings is synonymous with emotions, love, affection, friendship, anger, hatred, anxiety, but the Pali word that the Buddha used is subtler, and it points to a, an activity of the mind, or really of the body-mind intimately connected, um, that uh, an activity that underlies and precedes our emotions in the same way that flipping a light switch precedes illuminating a light bulb. Uh, so to me, feelings is not, has never been a very good translation but I don't know what else to call it, you know, it, just to remember that we're talking about something different. So the, the Vedanas are not feelings, but feeling tones, uh, pleasing, unpleasant, pleasing or pleasant, unpleasing, unpleasant, neutral. Um, and um, at the Buddha says, if we don't, if we don't watch out for them, the uh, Vedanas don't just influence, but govern, but govern, pardon me, the way we perceive the world. Uh, and it's really important to watch out for them and to, to appreciate what's going on in our minds and bodies. Uh, in my time as a Buddhist practitioner, I've always been fascinated by the Vedanas because they were among the first aspects of Buddhist psychology that I was able to apprehend as true within my direct experience. A lot of Zen teachings are kind of abstract. You may have noticed this. Uh, certainly a lot of the Buddhist teachings are very abstract. Even within the teachings about 
uh, about Satipatthana. Uh, but the Vedanas are, in my experience, in here, in, in everything that I perceive. Uh, party, they're, they're part of my body and mind as a thinking social animal. And the animal part is important, that they arise out of our evolutionary background, our, our approach to the world that has to do with survival. Uh, they're not so much like windows or eyeglasses that one looks through as the, as the operation of the optic nerve. And I hope I can ex uh, explicate that a little better soon. Uh, let me ask a favor, Daniel. Uh, take the little handbell and ring it as sweetly as you can. This one? Uh, no, the little the handbell. I've never done this. Okay. We hold it upside down, and you see in, above your where your fingers are. There's a little. There's actually a handle that comes out. So uh, pull lift it out. That up. Pull yeah. it up like this. Yeah, up. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So I, I hope everybody can see what Daniel is doing. Everybody online. So this is a little handle that we use once a week for the when the. Beginning of the last vows at the Sunday service, so it's 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 a roll down with that bell. But I want you to just ring it one time, mm -hmm. just lightly tap the the edge of the bell while you're holding it up straight. You hold it like this. Yeah, exactly. So I, my hearing of high pitches is not very good, but it's still resonating for me. I can still hear it resonating. So, okay, set that down. And then do the thing that you would do uh, when uh, Cam has uh, knelt and then he lowers his hands to the mat. Give, give the, the big bell a sharp chunk. Okay. So not much resonance there. Um, maybe you heard, maybe when you heard the little bell, you, in, you had a sense of enjoyment of that resonance and of the kind of sweetness of tongue. And maybe when you heard the chunk, you thought, well, that's kind of unpleasantly sharp. Or, or maybe you had a, a pleasant reaction to that too. But that re I, the point I'm trying to make is that the reaction um, is comes uh, at least a, a split second before you have any words for it. Uh, and, and in fact, provides guidance for the words that you will put to the experience. That's like, oh, that was, uh, that chonk was a sound I've heard before. But before you get to the processing of that, you have decided whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And I'll, again, I'll come back to the neutral because it's very important. Um, so just again, I, I hope that was a useful illustration of how feeling tones kind of wrap around and, and shape our perception of things that we think are bare perceptions. They're not. We've already got the Vedanas in the way. Uh, it seems to me that there is a different sense that our mind-body apparatus is constantly scanning. So we, that's an external event. But if you just sit still, you find that your body and mind are constantly scanning for things to have reactions to. Uh, and again, this is part of our evolutionary background and, and survival uh, strategies for human beings, that is, uh, under the level of cognition in our minds, the, our, this aspect of our physiology and psychology, they are constantly scanning for things to pay attention to. Uh, do you ever feel restless in meditation? That's what that's coming from, I think. That's my, my perception. Uh, I think that's where the restlessness comes from. This ceaseless, nervous activity and energy that we don't ask for, uh, and, and, and we have to work hard to notice it, uh, much less to 
try and bring it under any kind of control, if that's even possible. Um, it's my guess that pleasant and neutral feelings are only preludes to what our brains really want, which is unpleasant experiences. Um, neutral feelings. Our brains want information from the outside of the world to be significant, to be noticeable, to be signal, not noise. That's what our, our brains are hungering for that. And if we are, if we are, uh, have only neutral experiences going on, as happens with most of our body most of the time, if we're, if we're looking into the feelings in our body, um, we experience that as a kind of lack of activity, a lack of action. And, um, and, uh, and what do we call that? We call it boredom. You know, and what is boredom? It's a special category of pain. You know, we have to get rid of boredom. It feels so bad. There's a famous thing not so long ago. They did an experiment at the University of North Carolina where they had a group of dozens of students come in and they had a choice of uh, giving themselves an electric shock or sitting quietly for 15 minutes. <laughs> and more than half of the participants and almost all the men participating chose after a few minutes to just start shocking themselves. <laughs> so that's a, that's a measure of, you know, boredom uh, of, of what kind of pain it, 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 uh, it takes. So, uh, we experience boredom as a special category of pain and pleasurable experience or pleasing experience. The problem with them is they don't last. And then they, that, turns, that turns to its own kind of pain. And the, the Buddha talks about this a lot. Uh, the Roman poet Ovid writes about the poignancy of the human condition, giving the example that even the most passionate moments of lovemaking, the lover is always wanting more, something different, something more. And there, there's this wonderful poem by Basho that may have been read on Friday, um, translated by Jane Hirschfield in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoo. I long for Kyoto. Sorry, that, that poem gets me. Um, so I, I, I want to give a personal example of just kind of the transition from quietness and, and uh, neutral feelings into unpleasant ones. I'm sitting, I'm watching my breath, as it were behind my back, you know, somewhere outside of my, of my knowledge, my perceptual apparatus is constantly scanning using my nerves and my senses of proprioception and interoperception um, to uh, check on parts of my body. Since most of these parts are operating at a a baseline level of kind of blah okayness, uh, that okayness doesn't register, it's just noise. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't register because I'm predisposed to notice things that are either pleasing or unpleasing, and mostly the unpleasing ones. Then I, here I am, I'm sitting, and I notice that I have a sensation in the back of my left calf. And before I can name them, that feeling, uh, it comes to me framed as unpleasant before I have time to register it through the, through the, the, the thought processing, processing parts of my mind, uh, or before I start to make uh, sense of it, as it were. Um, do our, uh, our systems, the, the physical and mental systems, push us to make sense of, un, of pleasant things, not so much, of neutral, of neutral sensations that were neutral then in us, again, not so much. Partially because they pass away quickly, they have shorter half-lives as it were, but unpleasant things call for exploration, for proliferation of potential background reasons for why they are occurring. And, and for a range of solutions to evaluate and to uh, choose among uh, for action 
and then an, a, a building intensity, a building push to uh, take action, to make things better, uh, and to stop whatever it is that we're not liking. So when I notice my knee, the process shifts in a split second to a series of evaluations and decisions. Uh, if I were meditating, or if I were not meditating, I would simply scratch, you know, or whatever, or respond to whatever it is, shift my toe because it feels slightly weird in my sock or whatever, you know, whatever that is. Um, and, um, but I have decided, I've given the, the feeling a name, it's an itch, and, I, and then I proliferate on that. Uh, because I've named it, I'm compelled to ask questions. Is the itch moving or static? Is it getting worse or is it going away? Uh, is it changing in any other way? And, and then I get into fantasy land. Uh, is it an ant bite? Uh, I live in Albuquerque where there are lots of black widow spiders and I see them in my office, you know. In fact, they're very shy and not aggressive and everything. But every time I get an itch, I thought, is this going to be really bad? Could this be a black widow bite? Um, and before I know it, it's just become intolerable. I have to act to deal with this. Except, you know, sometimes I don't have to act. I can actually sit still and, and be a good meditator, you know. Uh, and the, the thing is that this whole process, typically for me at least, is going on in a kind of background mode. Uh, and seldom arises to the level of cognition, uh, and only through a concerted effort and the guidance that I've had from Peg and Flint and having studied the Satipatthana Sutra before, uh, I know to watch out for that. And again, this has been a, a very big, important part in my, in my practice ever since when I when learning about this, to say, to, to see that this is going on in the background. And um, well, I'll, I'll talk more about this, but that if we don't address it, as the Buddha says, it, it leads to proliferation of thoughts, proliferation of thoughts leads to habits, and habits can shape a whole life. There's a, a wonderful uh, tone poem by the, the um, a, a choral piece, tone poem, by um, the composer Steve Rice called a thought, and there's only one line. So, how small a thought it takes to build a whole life. Um, so, proliferation, all those kinds of things, getting snagged in the unconscious operation of Vedanas, unpleasant feelings, pleasant feelings, neutral feelings, and how they spin out. Uh, reminds me of a story that I heard, or a teaching that I heard from uh, a teacher in Albuquerque. I've mentioned this before in a talk that um, she said, if you're, you know, when you're sitting, imagine you're sitting, sitting on the bank of a river uh, and it's beautiful and quiet and you're in the shade and the temperature's perfect and all of that. And uh, down the river come a series of boats and some of the people, and there are people on all the boats, and some of them are having a wonderful time, and some of them are fighting, and some of them are replaying a scene from your childhood, and some of them are uh, helping you decide what to do at work tomorrow, and that sort of thing. She says, watch them go by. Don't get on the boat. That's the main thing. That's, who, that's what the Buddha is counseling with respect to the Vedanas, although he doesn't exactly say that in the sutra itself. But when we mistake, again, when we mistake a feeling tone for reality, apprehending something as pleasant or unpleasant, we try, I'm sorry, particularly for pleasant, we try to cling to it and we get into the habit of indulging what the Buddha calls passions. If we if it's unpleasant, we try to end it with action or distraction, and that feeds our habit of aversion. Uh, and if we apprehend something as neutral, we try to substitute some other more, more pleasant feeling tone for it. 
uh, Analio says there's more. Taking, if we take the data notes as accurate, uh, the, that is the information that we're getting from this internal process, we lose contact with a huge Dharma gate, which is the possibility of participating in moment-to-moment -moment experience. And it, in my experience, it's only in rare moments that I can separate myself enough from this, this feeling tone activity that I can actually participate in moment-to-moment -moment experience. Uh, perhaps worst of all, the Buddha hints in the description of this, the Vedanas are the primary on-ramp for the process of our primal delusion, the most important and most uh, powerful delusion that we live with, which is that uh, we can construct and reinforce and inhabit uh, a, a impregnable sense of uh, ourself as a separate self. And I'll be talking more about that this afternoon. We're talking about the mind and mental Joel, states. Can you please say that again? Uh, you know, I was just Im improvising on my written work. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I'm going to say what's written here. Perhaps worst of all, the Buddha hints, the Vedanas are the primary on-ramp for the process of our primal delusion, constructing and reinforcing a sense of a separate self, which is the great, as Peg calls it, the great innocent mistake that turns our lives into suffering. Okay. Uh, and I, I will say more about that later. So what does the Satipatthana Sutta say about Vedanas and how, finally I'm getting around to what it actually says in the Sutra, uh, how to use them to establish mindfulness? Here is the instruction from the Sutra. Um, would you read this italicized part and then hand it back to me? <clears throat> And how does a monk remain focused on feelings in and of themselves? There is the case where a monk, when feeling a painful feeling, discerns, I am feeling a painful feeling. When feeling a pleasant feeling, he discerns, or she, I'm feeling a pleasant feeling. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he discerns, I am feeling a neither painful nor, pleas nor pleasant feeling. Okay. So uh, then the Buddha in the, in the sutra uh, goes to the whole checklist, you know, painful, not painful, pleasant, not pleasant, neutral, not neutral, not pleasant or unpleasant or neutral or none of the above. And then he localizes them in, in particular descriptions, uh, uh, feelings of the flesh, not of the flesh, internal or external and so on and on. Uh, and uh, I'm going to skip over all of that and just read one more time or, or to, to read some more. In this way, from what uh, Nelda just read, but again, just read the italicized part here. In this way. In this way, the monk remains focused internally on feelings in and of themselves or externally on feelings in and of themselves or both internally and externally on feelings in and of themselves or he remains focused on the phenomenon of origination with regard to feelings, on the phenomenon of passing away with regard to feelings, or on the phenomenon of origination and passing away with regard to feelings, or his mindfulness that there are feelings is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance, and he remains independent, unsustained by, not clinging to, anything in the world. This is how a monk remains focused on feelings in and of themselves. Thank you. Okay, I'm coming toward the end. This has been a long Joe, I'm, I'm yes. sorry, sorry to interrupt again. Yeah. Uh, I understand internal feelings because you've right. been talking about that and you understand it. <clears throat> what are external feelings? Uh, this is not an easy question to answer. I, I mean, I have an answer for myself that I've, that I've but I'd like to get more input on it. Uh, but I, I think it means feelings in regard to things outside the mind, uh, or you know. To, so I'm looking at that candle uh, flame, and it looks really nice to me. So I'm having a feeling with regard to an external thing, 
I, that's, that's how I, I read it, not as an externalized feeling, but a, a feeling in response to an external input, or what feels like an external input. And in the end, so, there's no separation. Yeah, in the, exactly. It's a, but walking in the charnel ground, you see a lot of things that you don't see looking into yourself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and, and again, notice that the boot, following that piece of advice from the Buddha on how to proceed, uh, one can focus on the feelings uh, one way, uh, the feeling itself, or can focus on the way that the feeling arises, how it arises, and the way the feeling passes away or both of them. So again, it's a, it, this is like breath meditation. You can focus on the feeling of the breath coming in and out, or you can focus on the beginning phase of the breath or the ending phase of the breath or all of them together. Um, or you can simply recognize the process. I have a body, I have, a, I have feelings. There's, these things are arising over and over and over again. And to be able to, to see that is, it's important to do it smilingly. It was this recognition that pretty much almost stopped me from sitting because it was this constant cascade of mental activity that I just, it was so, I just found it overwhelming and, and almost physically painful to be able to, to be unable to stop noticing it. <clears throat> anyway, so do that smilingly, as Analio says, uh, about the body and the, the elements. Uh, what does that sound like? It, to me, it sounds like thought labeling, a practice that, a, a term that I know from reading Joko Beck and that Peg and Flint has talked about a lot. Uh, we're just noting an experience as it arises and not becoming immersed in it or, uh, or to uh, allow it to proliferate into thoughts and we're not getting caught up in our reactions to words that we make up about it. We're seeing that there, is, there are chances for freedom at each of those connection points and that we don't have to connect. Just the bare fact of the effective tone from moment to moment experience. We noted. That's what the Buddha is talking about. Bhikkhu Analeo suggests an even more concise method. And I, I love this. Uh, rather than letting our attention just stay with a particular Vedana, uh, vainly hoping that it will stay if it's pleasant or, or to disappear if it's unpleasant, uh, we can turn our attention to discern the empty of self nature quality of experiences that arise and pass away. And, and the lack of control that we have over them and that we can, we can actually smilingly embrace that lack of control uh, because it is proof of non self that these are, these are activities that arise on their own outside our control and they're impermanent. And if we embrace them, that's dukkha. And if we don't embrace them, that, that is an opening to more freedom. And finally, this is the part that I really like from, from Analio, that instead of focusing on these individual things, we can focus on the push, the intensity of the experience that, that is in each of them. Sometimes, you know, like I had to, struggle to come up with, how was I seeing that candle flame? Oh yeah, it was pleasant. Um, <clears throat> but other ones come with a big push. They come with a real load of, of mental energy or, or bodily mental energy, I think. Uh, the intensity of the feeling. And, and then, you know, as they come along, you can kind of compare the intensity levels of these things. And again, this provides a, a kind of an opening into freedom for dealing with these Vedanas. Um, Peg says that the Theravada literature might be seen, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> this has come up several times in practice discussion and, and 
and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about it later, but it might be seen as suggesting that you substitute one idea for another. That um, if you encounter something uh, unpleasant, uh, that you come up with a more pleasant idea to, to substitute for it, and that that will help you be more equanimous about these things. She says that's a mistake. She counsels for a different path, which is adopting a sense of compassionate curiosity about how Vedanas arise and, and about how they arise within you and what effect they're having on you. Are they coming out of the survival parts of our brains? Probably. Uh, are they coming from childhood conditioning? A lot of the time, certainly so. She also suggests holding such impulses when we recognize them in a bigger container, that we remember that we have the small mind and the, and and there's a certain sense in which the, the Vedanas are the, one of the crucial aspects of the operation of what we would call our small mind, but that we also have, a, we are also in the big mind that is all mind. Uh, and she says that remembering uh, and holding a, uh, the, the Vedanas in a bigger container is right view, that is, a more accurate way of, of uh, holding this constant reactivity that we bring along with us, or that was here before we arrived, in a way. Um, we don't make our feeling tones wrong, but we hold them in the light of our Buddha nature. So that's it. I'm going to stop there. And I have an activity that I want to May suggest. May I ask a question? Joe? Yes. Um, because I don't want to confuse how we how we use words, so okay. I want to stick with with tones. We've talked this section is it's feeling tones, right. and it seems to me that when we break feeling tones into positive, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, that in a way we are talking about how the brain also divides into safety and danger, constantly scanning mm -hmm. for those. Right. And so um, danger being unpleasant and, and, and um, safety being either neutral or, or pleasant. Mm -hmm. So if that's all accurate, if, the, if, if we have such a strong bent on scanning for danger because that's what the brain keeps us alive. That's where it keeps yeah. us. Would it, and I'm, I ask this, I'm curious about this, would it not be a good part of our practice to intentionally stay, not attached, but with the pleasant to more fully embody, embody a sense of pleasant, i.e. safety? Or would that be delusion? Would we, would it, would it then make us feel naively so safe in having practiced safety, therefore pleasant feeling or neutral feeling tone, mm -hmm. that we would then start deluding ourselves? Just did that all? Kim and I are going to talk tomorrow about seeds of wisdom and joy, and and the advice that Analio gives on just that that there is a joy in being in the present moment. Uh, and there's a, a very powerful story from the Buddha's childhood that uh, he, after almost killing himself with privation, he realized or he remembered that he had had an experience of joy. And uh, John Tarrant uses a phrase that always sticks with me. It was joy that did not was happiness that did not arise from getting what he wanted. It was just joy. And it, that was being under the rose apple tree while his father was out doing the harvest ceremony uh, when he was a young child. And that is what was one of the things that turned him from privation to the middle way. And so we'll talk about that some tomorrow. It is, it is a, uh, important thing to cultivate. Uh, it can be naive, it can be Pollyanna, 
It can be um, a mistake, but as you are pointing to, given the uh, given the the negative bias of our brains, uh, like I said, we're just constantly scanning for something to be scared of. Uh, you know, think of yourself in the car. You're driving and everything is fine, but your your peripheral vision and your your um, the the part of your anatomy that makes your heart bump faster and and you know puts out the adrenaline and stuff is at the ready all the time and has to be or you would die. You know, you see. One time, a, a piece of a truck fell off right in front of my wife's car, and she ran over it, and it ripped the front end of her car off. But she was able to react in such a way to get off the road and uh, not die. You know, she didn't decide to do that. It just was an automatic reaction. And I, you know, there, I'm sure everybody has many experiences like that. But uh, the the cultivation of a, a of remembering of, well, in Buddha's brain, Rick Hansen says that our minds are Velcro for trouble and Teflon for pleasant experiences, for happiness. And that, you know, it takes actual um, physical embodiment to hang on to a sense of, of, of happiness. And it's really good if you're remembering something to touch your lips or to put your hand over your heart when remembering a pleasant experience. So mm -hmm. thank you for mentioning that. And I'm, I'm going to work on my talk tomorrow and uh, just talk about that some more because it's very important. And it's not something that gets directly addressed, but it emerges as a, as a theme, an underlying theme in this. Satipatthana teaching. That's okay, right. 10 minutes before Kenyan starts. So I want to just, let's just turn this over to question time and not do the activity because the questions are more important. We have one minute before Kenyan starts. Yeah, 10 minutes before Zazen. Oh, 10 minutes before Zazen. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I want to hear some questions. <laughs> so uh, let me, let's go to Ellen and then Kim and then Becky and, and then Gabriella. Okay. Um, yeah, Joel, thank you for that great talk. I really appreciated it and learned a lot. Um, I wanted to respond to Michael's uh, question about internal and external. I think mm -hmm. your response was completely legitimate and tends to be how I, how I also think of it. Uh, but um, I just wanted to note that Analio, uh, he, he, in his, from his point of view, he thinks that the external is actually referring to others. So you have positive, you know, you have these pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. It's a, an understanding that and seeing it in others happening as well. So I just wanted to add that, that that's his perception. Okay, and I'm going to talk about that this afternoon. Oh, I'm sorry, I cut you off, Ellen. Please go ahead. No, you didn't. You're good. Uh, the um, uh, mirror neurons in our heads that allow us to participate in others' feelings. So that's a, a much fuller explanation uh, that Ellen is offering here. Okay, Kim? Yeah, I see us more as, as multi-brain or brain has many parts and mm -hmm. one part is, is this thing of uh, what's going to go wrong, mm -hmm. but then another part might be love and looking for, you know, finding pleasant things mm -hmm. and stuff. That it's not like one brain. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, the Buddhist brain, you know, mentions different parts and how indeed. they evolved. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, actual physical parts. Yeah. And then we use a lot of language from, from family systems. And then our conditioning yeah. certainly is yeah. a factor in terms of, uh, you know, if you grew up with people who <clears throat> who always looked for the pleasant thing. Mm -hmm. I had a, my mother was Pollyanna, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, so that helps mm -hmm. to counter the danger brain. Mm -hmm. And we and we absolutely need both, right? 
Yeah. So because they are they are both incomplete but important descriptors of, of the reality that's always in front of us. I'm su surprised how quickly I slam on the brakes when something goes wrong. It's it's and and that suggests to me that what you're saying about this danger brain. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It's not like a, a discursive thought. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, I better step on the brake. It mm -hmm. happens, so I must be ready for it. Right. But, I, but what I what I think is important about that is yes, if we put our hand on a hot object, our brain communicates with the hand without passing through the parts of the brain that say, "Oh, that's a hot thing. I really ought to not burn myself." That it doesn't go through that centers. But there's another there's another way in which they're operating, which is uh, I was talking to this about uh, talking with Daniel about this yesterday, that there have been times, not all the time, but in Kenyan, when I have thought judgmental thoughts about other people who are walking the wrong way <laughs> and not doing what I want them to do, <laughs> and and then I try and stop it, and yet it cascades through again. And that, that there's ways in which I guess in, this is about the external thing where we're we're projecting our our perceptions onto other people. So there's there's a there's an automaticity to both. That that uh, again, one is a quick reaction and the other is a shaping of our thoughts. So okay, so uh, are you done? Yes. With your reflection, you. thank you so much, you. Becky. This is all wonderful stuff. It's just amazing to me, the detail and the big picture and how detailed this is and, and how big the picture can be. Um, but the a few thoughts that I've had across this that I would like to put out there and as not necessarily my perception of something. Um, one of them is that uh, a word that he uses that is, I think, really useful for us to have is smilingly. And to, to respond with or, and hold it smilingly. And the reason it is, is because when we smile, the endorphins are, are invited. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so what it means is we aren't fabricating we aren't fabricating a change as you might if if you were saying oh let's see i can make this something else but we are inviting our own chemistry to put it back into a balance so that's that's my my thoughts on that that is so important uh, thank you and and the other thing that I still struggle with, but it seems to me that that we need to have the concept of necessary suffering and unnecessary suffering as part of our filter in there. For instance, even if it's just when I'm sitting, I know that I need to allow myself to respond to certain of the pain experiences I may have while sitting. Because if it only means shifting something in my back by a little bit, for instance, then I need to do that or I'm, I'm at risk for actually having a, a you know, a, a fracture in my spine. And I, I know that I could, I know I could move past that, that pain. But why the heck would I? Yeah. So I think that even in the midst of something where we are trying to put all, all of those little side things and just notice them and so on, that we need the part that says, is this necessary suffering? Or is, is this something that I can hold differently? 
-hmm. So that's just a, a thing that I, I struggle with that all the time in my sitting. So I think that it's a value for me, certainly. Thank you. Oh. It is. That's the Dharma talk I wish I had given. Gabriella? Um, hearing Nelda's question, I, I think that now with the, the new information that's coming out, uh, about trauma and how it affects the body and the system. That's something that we will need to add, like a little chapter of of trauma and what happens in the body, because the yeah, like would be like a natural unpleasant thing or a trauma unpleasant thing, for example. No, how restless can be can we be in our body and looking for danger could be like very much uh, high when there's trauma yeah mm -hmm. so that needs to take to be taken care of and it's different like okay this is unpleasant or i feel you know yeah. danger so yeah just wanted to share that but uh, uh, to uh, quote, or not quote, but I, I'm reminded of something in Buddha's brain where the, the authors say that um, the, you know, fight flight response is a necessary uh, uh, part of human survival. Uh, and particularly if you're living in a cave and you're surrounded by saber toothed tigers, you know, which our ancestors did for a very long time. But if you're living a uh, comfortable modern life and that sense of anxiety doesn't get to calm down as it does for people who have experienced i'm sorry in in the way that people who have experienced significant trauma never get to calm down that that is destructive it's like physically destructive and mentally binding you know mentally uh leading to a painful lack of freedom and uh i think that's a thank you that's a crucial point I would and, uh, i'm sorry i think uh rosemary you have your hand up uh yes um i wanted to i uh, gabriella kind of said something that i wanted to say about trauma because um <clears throat> when um the body and the mind um feelings strong feelings come up um, from these um, historical conditioning. Um, you know, I think it's important to pay attention, like you have to pay attention. And how you do that in sitting um, is informed by everything you're talking about. But it really, it's a different category. And I think it, it um, I think I'm grateful to Gabriella for kind of weaving it into this conversation. Mm -hmm. It's different. And it doesn't mean indulging, it doesn't mean um, poor me, but it means paying attention with mm. curiosity. And, um, and that's been a confusion for me too, when I just hear it without the traumatic, um, uh, the trauma uh, information kind of as, as part of it. So um, yeah, it's, um, yeah, I think that's a really important um, factor. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, Stephanie, is your hand up? <clears throat> yes, so I just wanted to say two quick things. One, <clears throat> thank you so much, Joel. This is the talk I was hoping to hear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this and the question and answers has just been everything I was looking for in this intensive. So thank you. And the second thing I want to say is mostly to the online group. I don't know if the rest of you can see <clears throat> the Zendo with the play of the light in the leaves. You can. So 
<clears throat> the one thing I hate about being online is when you're in the Zendo, you get to watch that over the wood floor during the day as the day goes on. And it is such, it has been such an important part of my sitting. I had no idea I was gonna get to experience that online this morning. And I just wanna say what joy it has brought me to see that, that I get to share it with all of you online. So thank you, thank you. Our earth is turning at a thousand miles an hour. And we get to experience it by watching the window, the, the, the light from the window on the east side move across the floor. Um, I don't see any other hands. I want to add okay, yes. one thing, and, and, and I don't mean this in a trite way, but going back to what Gabriela said, and I know that in my practice for me with, with my childhood history of not just um, trauma, but complex PTSD from that. So lots of dragons pop up all at the same time that my container cannot hold that moment. So what I have done for me is that is helpful. I don't know if this will be helpful to anyone else, but I learned it from Harry Potter and I have formed another container. I have two containers. My bigger container cannot hold all of that. So much as in Harry Potter, they have a pensive bowl. And when that pops up, I physically take my wand, imaginary wand, tap my head and put those dragons in a whole separate container because I cannot manage them at that time. It will, it, it, the bottom falls out of my bigger container. Once my bigger container has a stronger bottom, I may not need that bowl, but for now, it's helpful. Just my little technique. Mm. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so deeply grateful. Mm.